Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 18 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday the 5th of June. First, I'll be talking to LiveTiles co-founder Carl Redenbach about remote working. And then I'll be talking to RMOT economist Jonathan Boimel about the downturn in Australian property prices because of COVID-19. But now, let's hear from Carl Redenbach. Well, Carl, will all this move towards social isolation? The big focus now is on remote working, and I believe LiveTiles is doing well in this area. Yeah, in fact, I think we're probably the best practice um, uh, work from home and remote working business, simply because four years ago, when we started our business, we're only four and a bit years old, um, we started in six countries. We had 20 people across six countries, believe it or not. Uh, we now have 19 offices and 25 people, and we are very dispersed across the world. So from our perspective, we, we have to, whether we liked it or not, work remotely, work flexibly, and I'd like to think we are best practice in, uh, in our class. So which countries are you working out of? Uh, so right now we have eight countries um, that we work in, 19 offices, um, and they are literally all across the globe, everywhere from Switzerland, Netherlands, Ireland, the US, Australia, um, yeah, just about uh, cover just about most regions. I should mention Denmark because we have 60 people in Denmark. 
Um, so, so yes, yeah, certainly um, we're used to operating in this fashion, and we're also used to operating in, in these sort of strange time zones where we've got people you know, up and up all night and down all, all morning. So it's one of those things that we, you know, we've been forced to work this way. When did you start with remote working? Yeah, well, we're lucky. We're sort of born in the cloud business, and I'd actually like to think we're our new age business. Um, we've been growing at nearly 150% year on year. In fact, we were announced last the other week um, as the fastest growing technology company out of Australia uh, and, and the fifth fastest growing company in Australia full stop. And essentially, one of our secrets of our success is that from day one, we've been happy to work flexibly with all of our employees. We're, we're a software as a service company and you know we have a lot of developers and engineers. Um, a lot of those engineers aren't necessarily what I would call client-facing people, so they don't need to be sort of sitting in front of a customer. And we do have a lot of client-facing people, and those people often travel and they'll go and see customer face-to-face. But even still, certainly, you know, I've been living in New York for the last 10 years, um, and certainly comparing it to Australia, um, I think the US were a lot more familiar with a lot more online and remote working facilities uh, out of the gate, because it is such a big country and so many different cities. Whereas in Australia, I think we're just starting to get used to it, in fact, you know, a lot of people were used to flying between Melbourne and Sydney or Sydney and Brisbane and vice versa um, as part of their day-to-day. But I, I felt like it was probably certainly more robust and, and, and people are used to it in the US. But we've brought those practices into our business and that's how we're operating. But we've done it from day one. We're only you know, a bit over four years old. The big challenge with remote working is you still have to work with customers. How do you manage that? Yeah, look, it's interesting. We, we, we have a number of techniques um, where we try to make the dealing with customers as personal, personable as possible. Uh, in fact, we do have a rule, certainly at these times when people are isolated um, and, they, and they don't have any interaction with anyone in a, in a physical workplace, um, to turn your video on, right? So that's a, a, an, an obvious one where we're saying, if you can see people face-to-face and have that video connection, that is an absolute critical component of, of, of keeping that connection and keeping that relationship going, seeing the whites, people's eyes, is, is a critical component and the expressions on people's faces. Now, um, it's made a little bit harder depending on certain areas and bandwidth, etc. but the great news is that the internet seems to have been developed faster and faster and, and the connectivity is better, certainly was even many years ago. But, but then we're also using things like sharing desktops and remote sharing. So, so what we can do is you can do things like one, either present information or two, in a lot of instances where we're doing what we call remote deployments or remote installations of our software or remote training, we actually take over people's desktops. So we actually ask for control. Um, they have to give that permission. So it's not like you just you don't just take over their, their computer, but you're able to actually take them through and step them through things. Um, and, and we're actually helping right now. We're trying to do the best we can to actually help and take this technology and even help, for example, the elderly. Um, we're working... Uh, in various locations across the globe where we're actually helping getting this, um, this type of technology in front of the elderly who might be isolated right now and don't have that connection and can't get to care workers. So there's, this sort of tech is available. We're, we're, not only are we using it ourselves, we're actually trying to help others in this time of need. It's, it's probably one of the most challenging times we've ever experienced in my lifetime and certainly seeing in the market. One of the issues that we have is that... Um, I'm sorry, this is my five-year-old son. You're going to see a lot of this, by the way, going on, I think, in the... Uh, <laughs> in, in, and I'm, I'm living in a house here with four kids. Um, and thankfully, I have that because I've got the social connection, right, with, with kids running around as crazy as it becomes. However, if I'm an elderly person, I, may have, I might be living by myself. 
and I may not be used to using this technology and I may not even be used to using websites. So what we trialled earlier this week out in Brisbane and it's gone really well is that we've been able to not only have this face-to-face connection with the carer and, and, and the elderly person, but actually help them jump online and, and actually show them like by literally sharing their, their computer screen, which can either be an iPad or it can be on their phone even, and, and helping them click through um, the, the government websites, government information websites, for example, and, and, and key information that they didn't even know how to get to because they're not used to using this technology full stop, let alone sort of video conferencing technology. So, so we think there's some really simple ways, and it first starts with this sort of face-to-face connection. I'd imagine you are talking to a lot of other tech companies. Would that be right? Look, we are. In fact, you know, I've got to say, um, guys like Scott Farquhar at Atlassian are, are real leaders in this, and and we have a, a, a general concern with at a variety of levels, whether it's customers or community. Um, there is no doubt this is the most challenging time I think a lot of us have faced in our lifetime. And we're worried about a couple of key things. The first thing we're worried about is is obviously people's health and well-being. And and obviously the the answer to that is you have to be isolated. I think everyone is aware of that. But then we're also worried about if that is the case and we have to be isolated, what happens to things like mental health? How do we connect people and how can we make being at home by yourself or with a couple of people that you're with all the time enjoyable and connected? And so some really innovative approaches. We've seen the guys in this group come together and put together, for example, uh, a WhatsApp group around getting information on your WhatsApp connect and channel. So you can now, uh, there's a number, and I'm happy to share this with you, where you can get up-to-date information and just send a number through to WhatsApp and it gives you that that the, the, any information you want from Australian government back straight away. But I think the other thing is that there's a real concern about how do we go about supporting the community? How can we help them? We've been lucky in our businesses and that most of our businesses have had some sort of remote working. And when, and a lot of our businesses are, are used to working outside of, you know, a, a traditional office, office setting. So that is good. So we want to try to depart the knowledge and really help companies and, and businesses in the community on how to operate in a remote environment, and, and that's what we're doing right now. In fact, we're with a bunch of governments around the world doing this right now as we speak. I'd imagine all the tech companies would be sharing information. Yeah, look, we, we, we are sharing information uh, every day, and in fact, we, we're sharing it, we're creating ideas, and then we're, then we're trying to disseminate that through the community, through governments, through customers, and, and as we said, if we look at those two things, the health and, health and well-being of people as the priority, you know, the great thing is we've got we've come up with some fantastic ideas that we're departing to, to companies. Things like happy hours, where people get together each at the end of the week in their workplace and they have a drink. It doesn't have to be alcoholic. They share a joke. They do things social that is not in the work context, but is in a social context, which sounds quite strange to set up an online meeting for a social meeting. But that's what we're doing, and we're telling companies and communities to do that because it does keep that connectivity alive. All these ideas have come out of the work that this group behind the scenes, spending a lot of time and a lot of discussion of how can we help today. What's interesting here is that the way this will change work, companies and society. Do you agree with that? Look, I think this will change the world forever. And I, and I think we'll just put a big big wrap on, 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 on the statement being the world. And I think there are some positives out of it and there'll be some negatives. And I, and, and I think... Look, starting with the negatives, there's going to be some learnings of how do we better support people if this scenario happens again or if people feel like they, they are isolated, whether that's physically or practically or even without those boundaries in place like we have now with the rules. Um, but then the positives are is this. We think, you know, we've always been a big believer that employers don't pro- provide enough faith in employees and, and, and that 
the traditional way of working, particularly for information workers, people like accountants or professionals, that they often have to be in the office. And I, I remember I, was, I started my life as a corporate junior lawyer, right? And I remember I used to go out and sometimes it'd be six o'clock and I wanted to get a coffee, but I'd have to leave my jacket on because I thought it was too early to leave because I didn't want people to look and think I was out of the office at 6 p.m. And then I'd come back, get my coffee, come back at 7 p.m. and then take my jacket and go home. That sort of stuff to me seems crazy. People that have got the right accountabilities, they should be able to work from anywhere at any time. They should be able to work in a cafe. They should be able to work at home and help their kids when they need to or support a family member that might need it, an elderly person, whatever it is. We should provide that flexibility. And I think the positive out of this is that business leaders, business owners are going to have to start thinking about how can we allow our workforce to have that flexibility. And ultimately, I think this is better for people's mental health. It's better for the society because it's more efficient. And then I think ultimately it's better for workers. So I think they're the sort of key considerations that I think are, are going to dramatically change after this uh, event. I think it will certainly make it more communal. Well, it's so strange. I mean, look, as isolating as this is, I've never had this many calls with this many people in my life. <laughs> I started this morning at 6am in Switzerland and, and had, a, had a call with the government there and I've, I've gone on to four or five calls. I've seen, uh, for example, my, my wife, we've just been living in New York She's got some very good friends in New York. Eight of them are jumping onto this online meeting technology and having a conversation, a face-to-face conversation. Again, something they may not have done as regularly as what they had. So there, there's no doubt that in, in some positive, weird way, there are some connections that are happening that may not have happened if we were going about our normal day-to-day business that uh, you know, has been like this since we've all been in our born, because no one's ever seen this in our lifetime, I don't think, this sort of isolation experience. Well, Carl, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. No, thank you, Leon. Have a great day there. Thank you. And now let's hear from RMIT economist Jonathan Boimel. Well, Jonathan Boimel, what's your view about the Australian property market? It's uh, heading down. There's talk that property prices will be down 32%. What's your view about that? Absolutely. So, you know, we saw some very impactful um, restrictions on Australian uh, real estate um, earlier on in the year, in, in March. Um, that included the closure of Australian borders, shutdown of non-essential services, a ban on open real estate inspections and auctions, uh, limiting on the, the numbers of people who could, who could gather in, in public. Um, that obviously had, a, had an impact. And we've seen also some significant economic fallout um, from COVID-19. Um, we saw the ABS unemployment figures released in May, showing that almost 600,000 Australians had lost their jobs in April. Significant spike, in fact, a record spike in, in underemployment. We've seen a very large proportion of workers uh, employed in, in small to medium enterprises being, being hit. Um, and we know that that's where the jobs are in Australia. And there was concern, right, that if reduction in income mean that the debt can't be serviced, Right. You'll have incidents of incidences of distressed sales and and so on. And these were sort of more of the, the, the short term, the short term concerns. It, it's worth noting, though, that no such signs of distress are, are visible yet in the housing market. Right. And that is probably as a result of a, a number of factors. Right. We've got a very low level of listings um, at the moment. The reprieve on mortgage repayments um, has protected people. Um, from distressed sales and government income support uh, would have gone a long way as well um, to supporting people who may be experiencing uh, unemployment, reductions in wages, reductions in number of hours and, and so on. 
and we also know that you know property is not like shares right so shares may be hit hard and fast uh, during a downturn um, but we know that houses as an asset aren't as liquid right they can't be bought and sold as quickly so price price movements are, are not as volatile so i guess that you know the big question is whether what we're seeing now with with the downturn is is temporary in nature or we think that uh, the COVID-19 downturn is is temporary um, then vendors might hold you know relatively high expectations for their property values and 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 just hold off um, from selling until the economy um, returns to to some level of some level of strength um, so you know in, in the short term I don't think we've we've seen yet what people are concerned about. We know though that there are some some concerning signs you know for the for the the medium and the, and the longer term. Um, we know that the RBA has adopted a record low cash rate of uh, 0.25 percent um, and that's been referenced as you know the, an effective lower bound. Um, so further reductions in the rate um, really won't add benefit to the economy, particularly when we've got low levels of consumer confidence. Um, and this is a medium term concern and in fact into the into the longer term. So yeah, there are there are concerns for the short to medium term. So I think you know the more interesting story will be what happens in the, the medium term. We know that mortgage rates are at their all-time lows, probably unable to fall much further um, at all. The RBA has adopted a record low cash rate of 0.25%. That is basically the effective lower bound. Further reductions in the rate won't see any um, benefit to, to the economy, particularly if we're experiencing low levels of consumer confidence. And we also know that in the medium term, we're going to be seeing a, a decline in population levels. So immigration will continue to be soft. It'll likely remain at lower levels for an extended period of time and that will remove a significant chunk of housing demand. So yeah, some, some medium term concerns as well as shorter term concerns about the, the state of the housing market. The population issue is quite major because uh, we're not expecting that to pick up for, well, at least a year, maybe more. Absolutely, absolutely. And then that has a, has a cohort effect, you know, over, over time. Um, so I think we're going to see what's often referred to as as the missing million okay so population project projections will certainly have to be readjusted um, and this will have uh, an impact again not just in the medium term but in the in the longer term on on housing demand okay so we're talking here impact on over many years in that case aren't we yeah absolutely over the next over the next several over the next several years i guess what is interesting though is that you know people were talking about growth in housing market values um, this year this was you know, people who were talking late last year but there was talk that you know the growth momentum would be slowing um, because of affordability constraints um, and also a higher level of of listings so we weren't expecting to see the same level of growth um, as we have in in previous years however i think you know the the recent recent events have, have put, let's say, a further break on uh, on price growth, and yeah, we're likely to see some you know some declines. We saw some declines uh, over over April into mid May, and uh, we're likely to see some some further declines. The magnitude 
um, I question the, the, the estimates of you know, a 30% price decline. Uh, we're likely to see some, some minor declines in house prices. The magnitude that, that some people are speaking of, I think, is, uh, is a little bit courageous. That said, a lot of uh, people's wealth is tied up with the value of their property, isn't it? So this, could act, this would actually affect household wealth and it would affect consumer confidence going forward, uh, wouldn't it? A hundred percent. If we see significant um, declines in house prices, then the value of people's assets will be taking a, a real hit. Um, and we know that there's a very strong link between consumption expenditure and household wealth. So with, if household wealth um, takes a hit because of a decline in housing prices, then consumption expenditure will take a hit as well. Uh, but we know consumption expenditure is a fickle thing. I mean, you take a look at the, the wild fluctuations in consumption expenditure over the last, over the last couple, of, couple of months. So we would have to see you know, significant declines, I think, in, in housing prices and household wealth before we could say you know, with certainty that we are going to see declines in, in consumption going forward. Yeah, well, that, that's that's quite a much significant issue because it does go to issues like GDP. Yeah, abs- absolutely, absolutely. I think um, you know there are certain sectors of the, of the economy which are going to be which are going to prove very, very important to the recovery. Construction being being part of that. These these are important. These are important sectors sectors of the economy. Um, but again, to date, housing values have only shown a, a mild downturn. Capital city housing values probably down by about half a percent um, over over the month to date. So yeah, let's just let's just wait let's just wait and see. Um, we know that people are being supported. I think an important point is that the downturn is likely to be temporary. So vendors may hold relatively high expectations for their their property values going forward um, and hold off selling until the economy returns um, to full scale production. But we know when we take a look at forecasts for unemployment, um, for example, the RBA forecasts that Australia's official unemployment rate will remain well above 7% um, by the end of next year. So vendors may over time start to adjust their expectations. Um, So we may see over time uh, a continual softening of housing prices as vendors um, start to adjust their expectations. And the concern is, of course, uh, when you have massive drop in employment and rise in unemployment, it can take five to 10 years to correct itself. I mean, we're still getting over the uh, global financial crisis in terms of unemployment. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, there was a a lot of hope for a a, a V-style recovery that we would would bounce back. Um, But we know that there are things that will impact the economy quite significantly, you know, for, for some time, you know, international travel, uh, for example, and the impact on restrictions of mobility on, on economic activity. These will be with us for, for some time. So given the RBA forecasts of, you know, relatively high levels of unemployment um, over the next 18 months, you would expect some, some continual softening of, of uh, house prices as vendors continue to adjust their expectations. But I think, you know, people have been supported through, through mortgage relief, through government income support, and so on. If we did not have that, then it's much more likely that we would have seen debt that couldn't be serviced, distressed sales, um, which would have a, a broad impact 
on, on the housing market. And we're not seeing that at this time. And uh, you, you believe this is temporary and it could come back, although the degree to which it comes back remains to be seen because yeah. of issues like unemployment. Absolutely. Issues like unemployment, issues like like uh, like population. These are certainly going to have um, medium term medium term impacts. I think, though, you know, the short term impacts we have to we have to wait and see. I mean, prices are supported by a relatively low level of listings at the moment. I wouldn't be forecasting a thirty percent drop in, in in house prices. But again, unemployment is going to remain at high levels for an extended period of time. Household incomes will remain stunted for a significant period of time. That certainly uh, won't, won't support a growth in, in house prices over the next three years. So over the next three years, we can ex- certainly expect to see subdued growth in house prices. Absolutely. If at all, yeah. Absolutely. Or, or, or a, a continual gener- uh, gentle weakening of house prices. Okay. Well, Jonathan Boymer will take all of that on board and thank you very much for your time. <laughs> thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, global stocks are trading at a three-month high as businesses continue to reopen around the world and manufacturing gauges show economies stabilising following coronavirus shutdowns. That's despite a slew of risks still on the horizon, including tense US-China relations that may jeopardise a hard-won trade deal. The sometimes violent demonstrations across US cities over the killing by police of George Floyd, an unarmed black man, aren't yet seen as a major drag on the economy and corporate profits. And ABS figures show the Australian economy shrank by 0.3% in the March quarter, amid bushfires and the early stages of COVID-19. Annual growth shrunk back to just 1.4% from 2.2% in the December quarter. The latest figures from the Australian Bureau of Statistics show household consumption expenditure decreased minus 1.1% in the quarter, with through the year growth down 0.2%. This makes it certain Australia will suffer its first recession in 29 years. And the Reserve Bank of Australia has kept the official cash rate on hold at 0.25% and said the economic downturn arising from the COVID-19 pandemic may not be as bad as first feared. And almost two-thirds of the cash withdrawn by Australians from their superannuation early during the coronavirus crisis has been frittered away on alcohol, takeaway food and clothes. A further 11% of the retirement savings was spent on gambling. New spending data shows 40% of those accessing their super experienced no drop in income during the pandemic or their loss was fully offset by government payments, raising questions about whether they really needed the money. The analysis by credit bureau Ilion and consultancy Alpha Better, a part of Accenture, is based on the bank transactions of 13,000 people who have withdrawn superannuation since the coronavirus outbreak. It shows that those withdrawing super used it to increase, not just maintain, their spending. Their purchases nearly tripled on average in the fortnight after the money was received compared to an average fortnight before the money was received. As part of its response to the pandemic, the Morrison government is allowing people to withdraw up to $10,000 from their super accounts tax-free now and up to $10,000 next financial year. When the scheme was announced in March, Treasurer Josh Friedberg said, This is people's money, and this is the time they need it most. And Australian Bureau of Statistics figures show better-than-expected company operating profits, but worse-than-expected inventories, muddying the picture on whether the country avoided contraction in the first quarter. First quarter company operating profits rose 1.1% quarter-on-quarter, beating economists' forecast for a 0.5% increase. Inventories fell 1.2% over the quarter, compared to forecasts for a 0.6% drop. 
The current account balance hit 8.4 billion, surging past economist expectations for an increase to 6.1 billion, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And in the past month, another 300,000 people joined the dole queues, pushing the total close to the number that had been expected by September. Acting Deputy Secretary of Social Security Shane Bennett said 1.64 million people were on the job seeker and youth allowance payments on May 22nd. Numbers have doubled in two months since the lockdown began. On March 22, 812,000 people were receiving unemployment benefits. At the same point in April, the number was 1.346 million. Now it is 1.64 million, with another 45,000 claims for unemployment benefits are still outstanding. Of the 300,000 people to have joined the dole queues in the past month, 50,000 are on the youth allowance, figures inquiry chairwoman and Labor Senator Katty Gallagher described as pretty staggering. Cash grants of about $25,000 to build new homes will be on offer until the end of the year and will be uncapped as part of the federal government's post-pandemic construction stimulus package aimed at saving the building industry. The package, likely to be launched this week, will also be means-tested to include those potentially earning up to $150,000 but will be available for only several months to avoid inflating house prices across the country. The grants to stimulate the residential construction sector will be means-tested to include upper-middle-income singles and couples and will be in place for only a short period to try to avoid causing a blowout in house prices. The construction package signed up on Tuesday by the Expenditure Review Committee is one of several industry-specific packages being drafted by the government as it moves away from the economy-wide broad assistance measures and targets sectors that will take longer to recover or have fallen through the cracks. And after weeks of resistance, the government is also working on a package to assist the entertainment industry. It is examining capital injections to enable stage and screen productions, which collapsed almost immediately when the pandemic struck, to get started again. Leaked draft communiques from a robust meeting last week of state and federal cultural ministers show the states had pushed hard to help the sector. The communique, which was never released because the Commonwealth would not agree, called for a range of measures including underwriting arts and cultural sector operations until full audiences were again allowed to broadening the eligibility of JobKeeper scheme to support the significant number of organisations, freelance and casual artists and arts workers, and employees of publicly owned or operated arts and cultural facilities that have been unable to access the program. The government will not be offering these workers JobKeeper. Prime Minister Scott Morrison said on Monday that an entertainment industry package based on capital investment was in the offing, as the government's economic response moves from the big, broad strokes of JobKeeper and JobSeeker to a focus on sectors which need that longer-term support. And major banks and insurers have recruited Australia's top climate scientists from the CSIRO, the Bureau of Meteorology and major research universities to help build the nation's first comprehensive set of common climate change risk disclosure standards. The Climate Measurement Standards Initiative, the latest in a string of initiatives that address Corporate Australia's growing concerns about the financial risks posed by climate change, will begin by conducting a detailed assessment of the physical risks to residential and commercial property and infrastructure. While the broad nature of climate risks are known, they include damage and disruption from fire, flooding, extreme heat, sea level rise and heavy rain, there is a huge amount of uncertainty over when and where they will occur and how extreme they will be. Much rides on whether efforts to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions are successful. The new initiative will engage with this complex, uncertain and ever-evolving picture, giving financial firms a much more granular and realistic sense of the nature of climate risk in Australia. The CMSI is led and funded by the National Australia Bank, 
Commonwealth Bank of Australia, Westpac, Suncor, QBE and IAG among others, and will draw its scientific experts from the Earth Systems and Climate Change Hub, a partnership of five universities, the CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology. The, the initiative will use up-to-date science to develop reporting standards of the sort set out by the International Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, but with a specifically Australian focus. The first draft of a new standard will be published in July. And the new owner of Virgin Australia will be a New York hedge fund or a global private equity group. But the person who could swing the deal either way is fun-loving Virgin Group founder Richard Branson. Virgin founder Branson is a key player lurking in the background as Virgin Australia administrator Vaughan Strawbridge sells the business to either Bain Capital or Cyrus Capital partners. Both bidders have been in close contact with Branson's right-hand man, the London-based and New Zealand-born Josh Bayliss. As chief executive of the Virgin Group, Bayliss is in the middle of managing the most significant crisis in the company's history. Australia remains one of the four key markets in Branson's empire. He'll be keen to preserve the annual $15 million to $20 million in licence fees paid to Virgin Group by Virgin Australia for the use of his iconic brand. Branson will inevitably match up with whoever is a successful bidder, but getting him on side during the next three weeks could well help in influencing the outcome of the sales process. Both companies have strong links with the Virgin Group. Bain helped develop the Virgin cruise ship business, which launched in January and is now in mothballs. Cyrus has as one of the, its key advisors Jonathan Peachy, who was formerly CEO of Virgin Group North America. And construction employers are pushing to scrap Saturday penalty rates and cut casual shifts to as few as two hours, warning that up to one-third of businesses in the industry could shut down if conditions do not improve in the next year. The bid to apply changes to restrictive industry awards for the rest of 2020, however, is being resisted by powerful construction unions who have accused businesses of exploiting the coronavirus pandemic to attack workers. The standoff between builders and unions comes as the Morrison government prepares to seek consensus for industrial relations changes and industry groups demand a minimum wage freeze for the nation's low-paid workers to be imposed for 12 months. And Australia's biggest medicinal cannabis extraction and contract manufacturing plant will be built at a secret location in Melbourne's southeast in a $50 million project aiming to help the local industry become more self-sufficient. The facility will be owned, funded and operated by the Valens Company, a Canadian medicinal cannabis business listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. However, an Australian distributor of the medicinal cannabis, Canav Canvalate, is managing the project, hiring staff and fitting it out with the necessary equipment. The 4,500 square metre facility will process raw material and produce a range of finished medicines, including soft gel capsules, tablets and ointments. It will have double perimeter fences, 24-hour CCTV and a range of other security measures, including a vault where finished products will be stored. Under licensing requirements, the plant's address cannot be disclosed, but it will be in close proximity to cannabis cultivation sites. And QBE has been named as one of eight insurers. The Britain's financial services watchdog will call to court as it tests whether their business interruption policies should pay out for the COVID-19 pandemic. The Financial Conduct Authority announced on Monday that it will launch the action on June the 9th, with insurers expected to file their defences by June the 23rd for a court case in the second half of July. QBE is one of eight insurers that will participate in the FCA's test case. The regulator's plan is to try and prevent a flood of individual claims through holding a single case that will cover 17 of the most commonly used policy wordings for non-damaged business interruption insurance. Britain has been in lockdown since March 24th, and its shuttered bars, pubs, hotels and clubs look set to feel the economic blow with particular force. QBE is in the thick of it, 
It's also facing a separate class action in Britain alongside Aviva from the hospitality sector. Law firm Mishcon Derea hopes to marshal the critical mass of litigants for that by the end of the week. QBE told the ASX its reinsurance practices would limit the cost of coronavirus-related business interruption insurance claims in Britain to US $75 million. That's $112 million Aussie. The insurer also said that its business interruption policies do not typically cover claims arising from COVID-19. And Clive Palmer's failed Queensland nickel refinery was insolvent in the days before administrators were called in, a judge has found. But Justice Deborah Mullins dismissed the liquidator's claim against Mr Palmer's flagship company Mineralogy that was indebted to Queensland Nickel. The judgment follows a mammoth Supreme Court civil trial into the company's 2016 collapse, which left 800 people out of work. The insolvency ruling could now attract the attention of the Australian Securities Investments Commission. Mr Palmer settled the majority of the $200 million lawsuit last year, including agreeing to pay $66 million in taxpayers' funds forked out for sacked workers' entitlements. But general purpose liquidators continued to pursue his companies in court for the remaining claims. They wanted to claw back about $120 million from mineralogy. However, liquidators could be left empty-handed after the Supreme Court in Brisbane dismissed any further claims against his parent company, Mineralogy. They are pursuing the former politician and financial review Rich Lister for $102 million in outstanding debts from QNI as well as their fees. And Brickworks says Australian sales revenue has declined 10% year-on-year in the four months to the end of May, while warning the riots sweeping the US have emerged as a potential disruption to its US business. Brickworks Australian business generated positive earnings before interest tax and period, with the closure of its plants benefiting cash generation, but weighing on earnings. In the US, sales revenue is up 26% compared to the same time last year, but this has been bolstered by acquisitions over the past 12 months. Brickworks Managing Director Lindsay Partridge said the company had made 200 people redundant across its operations after cutting back productions because of reduced demand. And Woolworths will emerge with the largest number of employee shareholders in Australia after awarding at least 100,000 staff with shares worth more than $50 million. The bonus scheme, foreshadowed by Chief Executive Brad Banducci in April, is in recognition of employees' efforts over the last year, arguably the most challenging since Woolworths listed in 1993. It was marked by panic hoarding during COVID-19 pandemic, which boosted Woolworths Australian supermarket sales by as much as 40% in March, and disruption from bushfires, drought and floods. And Australia's universities are flagging the ongoing impact of COVID-19 pandemic could cost them billions in revenue over the next four years. The higher education sector has been hit hard by a drop-off in international students as the pandemic led to border closures. The federal government's early move to stop people coming from China was especially damaging, with that country the largest source of international students to Australia. New modelling by Universities Australia, released on Wednesday, predicts the sector could lose $16 billion in revenue between now and 2023. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to leading Australian barrister Ian Neills, SC, on the implication of COVID-19 for the gig economy. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruyan on the challenges of making forecasts about health and the economy. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBiz, B-O-Z, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 